Chapter Fourteen of The Young Railroaders. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain and is read by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. The Young Railroaders by F. Lovell Coombs. Chapter Fourteen: The Last of the Freight Thieves. No, I'm not after you this time," laughingly responded Detective Boyle to Jack's half-serious inquiry on recognizing his visitor at the station, one evening a month later, as the road detective who on the previous memorable occasion had called in company with the sheriff. "'Instead I want your assistance. Do you know,' he asked, seating himself, "'that your friends, the freight thieves, are operating again on the division?' "'No!' said Jack in surprise. "'They are, and they have evolved some scheme that is more baffling even than the haunting trick you spoiled for them here last spring. Every week they are getting away with valuable stuff from one of the night freights between Claxton and Eastfield, while the train is actually en route, apparently. That sounds incredible, I know, but it is the only possible conclusion to come to, since the train does not stop between those places, and I made sure the goods each time were aboard when it left Claxton. Jack whistled. That does look a problem, doesn't it? But where do I come in, Mr. Boyle? Last evening, while thinking the matter over, the trick the thieves used here at the junction recurred to me. The man shipped in a box. It came to me. Why couldn't that same dodge be played back against them in this case? Oh, I see. "'Have yourself shipped in a box and stolen by them. "'Clever idea!' exclaimed Jack. "'Not so bad, I think, myself. "'Well, in the country between Claxton and Eastfield, "'where it is my theory the gang has its headquarters, "'there are no telephone or telegraph lines, "'and it struck me it would be a good plan "'to take along someone with me "'who, in case of things going wrong, "'could make his way back to the railroad "'and cut in on the wire and call for help.' "'and naturally you were the first one I thought of. "'Do you want the job?' asked the detective. "'I'd jump at the chance,' Jack agreed eagerly. "'It'd be more fun than enough. "'But, Mr. Boyle, how do you know that the boxes are taken "'to the freight thieves' headquarters, unopened, "'and not broken into right at the railroad?' "'I figure that out of the number and size of the packages "'they have taken each time, just a good load for a light wagon.' and anyway you can see that that would be their safest plan. If they broke up boxes near the track, they would leave clues that would be sure to be found sooner or later, and put us on their trail. And through a friend in the wholesale dry-goods business at Claxton, who I'll see down there tonight, the detective went on, I can make practically sure of our being stolen together. The thieves have shown a partiality for his goods, and by having our boxes attractively labeled silk, and placed just within the car door, there will be little chance of the robbers passing us by. My plan is to bring it off to-morrow night. Would that suit you? concluded the detective. Yes, sir. That is, if I can get away. For it will take all night, I suppose? Yes, there will be no trouble about your getting off, though. I spoke to Alan before I came down, said Boyle, rising. All right, it is arranged. You take the 5.30 down tomorrow evening, with the necessary instruments, and I'll be at the station to meet you. Good night. As Boyle had promised, Jack had no difficulty in arranging to be off duty the following night, and early that evening he alighted from the train at Claxton 
to find the railroad detective awaiting him. "'The instruments, eh?' queried Boyle, indicating a parcel under Jack's arm as they left the station. "'Yes, sir, and I have some wire and a file in my pocket.' "'That's the ticket, and everything here is arranged nicely. We will head for the warehouse at once.' "'Here's the other bolt of silk, Mr. Brooke,' the detective announced a few minutes later, as they entered the office adjoining a large brick building. "'All ready for us?' "'Hm. He's a pretty small bolt, isn't he?' commented the merchant, eyeing Jack with some surprise. "'A trifle, but he makes up for size in quality,' declared the detective, while Jack blushed. "'He is the youngster who solved the ghost riddle,' and spoiled this same gang's game at Midway Junction. The merchant warmly shook Jack's hand. "'I'm glad to meet you, my boy,' he said. "'After that, I can readily believe what Boyle says.' "'Yes, I am all ready. This way, please,' he requested. Following the speaker, Jack and the detective found themselves in a large shipping-room. As they entered, a workman with a pot and ink-brush in his hand was surveying lettering he had just completed on a good-sized packing-case. "'Here are the goods, Judson,' announced the merchant. "'Already, sir,' the workman responded, eyeing Jack and the detective curiously. "'Did you substitute boards with knot-holes?' Mr. Brooke asked. "'Yes, sir. This is the door,' said the man, indicating two wide boards at one end. I use both wooden buttons and screw-hooks on the inside, as you suggested. Good. The detective examined the box. You've made a good job of it, he commented. I suppose this is the boys, he added, turning to a smaller box, on which also were the words, silk, valuable. With lively interest, Jack examined the case. Get in, and let us see how it fits, suggested the merchant. Jack did so. "'Fine,' he announced. "'I could ride all night in it easily, either sitting or lying down curled up on my side.' Detective Boyle glanced at his watch. "'You may as well stay right there, Jack,' he said. "'We will start just as soon as the wagon is ready.' "'It's ready now. Judson, go and bring the dray around,' the merchant directed. As the man left, the detective produced and handed Jack a small pocket revolver. "'Here, take this, Jack,' said he. "'I hope you'll not have to use it, but we must take all precautions.' "'Now to box you in.' So saying, the detective fitted the door of Jack's box into place, and Jack on the inside secured it with the hooks and wooden buttons, and announced, "'Okay.' The detective then entered his own box, and with the merchant's assistance closed the opening." As he tested it, there was a rattle of wheels without, and the big door rumbled open. A few minutes later the two boxes of valuable silk had been slid out onto the truck, and the first stage of the strange journey had begun. As planned, it was dusk when the two boxes reached the freight depot. The station agent himself met them. "'Everything okay, Boyle?' he whispered. "'Okay.' Places right before the door, with a lettering out, the detective directed. The agent did as requested, and with a final, "'Good luck!' closed and sealed the car door just as the clanging of a bell announced the approach of an engine. 
A crash and a jar told the two unsuspected travellers that their car had been coupled. There was a whistle, a rumble, a clanking over switch-points, and they were on their way. The wheels had been drumming over the rail-joints for perhaps half an hour, and the disappearance of the light which had filtered through the car door had announced the fall of darkness, when there came a screeching of brakes. "'Where do you suppose we are now, Mr. Boyle?' asked Jack from his box. "'It's the grade just north of Axford Road. When we hit the upgrade two miles beyond, we may begin to expect something. It was along here I figured that the—' "'What's that?' Both listened. "'One of the brakemen, isn't it?' suggested Jack. "'What is he doing down on the edge of the car-roof?' The next sound was of something slapping against the car-door. Suddenly the detective gave vent to a cry that was barely suppressed. "'Jack! I've got it! I've got it at last!' he whispered excitedly. "'The freight thieves have bought up one of the brakemen. He lets himself down to the car-door by a rope, opens it, and throws the stuff out!' Jack's exclamation of delight at this final revelation of the heart of the mystery was followed by one of consternation. "'But won't we get an awful shaking up if we're pitched off going at full speed?' he said in alarm. "'We may. We'll have to take it. It's all in the game, you know,' declared Boyle grimly. "'Sit tight and brace hard, and it'll not be so bad, though. Shh! Here he is.' There was a sound of feet scraping against the car-door, a rattle as the seal was broken and the clasp freed, then a rumble and the sudden full roar of the train told the two in the boxes that the door had been opened. Swinging within, the intruder closed the door behind him and lit a match. Peering from a knot-hole, Jack saw that the detective's guess was right. It was a brakeman. As Jack watched, the man produced and lit a dark lantern, and turned it on the cases before him. Jack held his breath as the light streamed through the cracks of his own box. "'Just to order,' muttered the brakeman audibly. "'And the bigger one, too. I'll not have to haul any out.' Then, to Jack's momentary alarm, then amusement, the man seated himself on the box above him. Presently, as Jack was wondering what the trainman was waiting for, from the distant engine came the two long and two short toots for a crossing, and the man started to his feet. With his eye to the knot-hole, Jack watched. Again came a whistle, and the creaking of brakes. Immediately the brakeman slid the door back a few inches, flashed his lantern four times, muffled it, and ran the door open its full width. The critical moment had come. Gathering himself together, Jack braced with knees and elbows. The trainman seized the box, swung it to the door, and tipped it forward. The next instant Jack felt himself hurled out into the darkness. For one terrible moment he felt himself hurtling through space. Then came a crackle of branches, the box whirled over and over, again plunged downward, and brought up with a crash. A brief space Jack lay dazed, in a heap, head down. But he had been only slightly stunned, and recovering— he righted himself, and found with satisfaction that he had suffered no more than a bruise of the scalp and an elbow. He had not long to speculate on his whereabouts. From near at hand came a sound of breaking twigs, and a voice. "'Here's one,' it said. Only with difficulty did Jack avoid betraying himself. 
It was the voice of the man Watts. "'What is it?' inquired a second voice. Through a crack a light appeared. "'Silk!' announced Watts. "'A good weight, too,' he added, tipping the box. "'Catch hold!' The packing-case was caught up, and rocked and jolted. Jack felt himself carried for what he judged a full quarter-mile. As the men slowed up a gleam of moonlight showed through the knot-hole, and peering forth he discovered a tree-lined road, and a two-horse wagon. Sliding the box into the rear of the wagon, and well to the front, the men disappeared. The wait that followed was to Jack the most trying experience of the evening. Had the detective safely landed? Was there not a possibility of the larger box having been shattered? Or sufficiently broken to reveal its true contents, and disclose the plot to the freight robbers? And what then would be his fate? These and many other disquieting possibilities passed through Jack's mind, causing him several times as the minutes went by to finger the hooks and buttons which would permit of his escape. Finally snapping twigs, then heavy, stumbling footfalls allayed his anxiety, and the two men reappeared, staggering under the box containing the officer. With difficulty the unsuspecting thieves raised the heavy packing-case to the tailboard of the wagon. "'It won't go in!' said Watts's companion. "'Push this way a little,' Watts directed. "'I can't. Look out!' There was a scramble, and the box crashed to the ground. At the same moment came a muffled exclamation, and Jack caught his breath. Was it the detective? If so, had the others overheard it? With relief, however, he heard Watts, who apparently was the chief of the gang, call his companion a mule, and order him to catch hold again. The box this time was successfully slid aboard, and at once the two men climbed to the seat, and the wagon rumbled off. As they rattled along over a badly kept road, Jack gave as close attention to the passing scenery as his limited view permitted, in order that he might be able to find his way back to the railroad if it should prove necessary. This did not promise to be difficult. On either side the dim moonlight showed an unbroken succession of trees, and also that the robbers were continuing in one direction, apparently due south. For what seemed at least two miles they proceeded. Then appeared a small clearing, and with a quickening of the pulse Jack felt the wagon slow up and turn in. They were at their destination. A forbiddingly suitable place for its purpose it was. Standing out darkly on the crest of a rise two hundred yards back was a low shanty-like house, in which appeared a single gleam of light. Between, to the road, stretched a desolate moonlit prospect of stumps, decaying logs, and brush-piles. On either side the woods formed a towering wall of blackness. Rocking and pitching, the wagon made its way up a ruddy corkscrew lane. They reached the house, and the door opened, and a tall, unpleasant-looking woman appeared and greeted the men. "'Good luck, eh?' she remarked briefly. "'Sure. Don't we always have good luck?' responded Watts. "'Is supper ready?' "'Yes. You uns better come in before you opens them boxes,' said the woman. "'All right.' Passing on, the wagon came at last to a halt before a good-sized barn. The two men leaped to the ground, and while one of them opened the large side doors, the other proceeded to back the wagon to it. As the two freight thieves then unhooked and led their horses to the stable, 
there came to Jack's ears a welcome tapping. "'Are you all right, lad?' whispered the detective. "'Yes, okay, sir, though a bit nervous,' Jack acknowledged. "'Keep cool, and we'll soon have them where we want them. As they're going into supper first, we'll not leave the boxes till then. That'll give us just the opportunity we want to look around and arrange things nicely. Shh, here they come.' "'Catch hold!' said Watts. Jack heard the detective's box slide out, and up from Watts, the staggering steps of the men across the barn floor, and a thud as the box was dropped. At what then immediately followed, Jack for a moment doubted his senses. It was the voice of Watts saying quietly and coldly, "'Now my clever friend in the box, kindly come out!' They had heard Boyles's exclamation when the box had fallen. Scarcely breathing, Jack listened. Would the detective give himself up without a— There was a muffled report, instantly a second, louder, then silence. "'Will you come out now?' demanded Watts. To Jack's horror there was no response. Watts repeated the order, then called on his companion for an axe, and there followed the sound of blows and splintering wood. "'Now haul him out!' Terror-stricken, Jack listened. Suddenly there came the sound of a scramble, then of a terrific struggle. The detective was all right. It had been only a ruse. Uttering a suppressed hurrah, Jack began hurriedly undoing the unfastenings of his door, to get out to the detective's assistance. Before he had opened it, however, there was the sound of a heavy fall and a triumphant shout from Watts. Promptly Jack paused, debated a moment, and restored the fastenings. He would wait. Perhaps they would bind Boyle and leave him in the barn. A moment later Jack regretted his decision. Through the knot-hole he saw the detective led by, his arms bound behind him, and one of the freight-robbers on either side. The voices and footsteps died away in the direction of the house, and Jack fell to wondering what he should do. Before he had decided he heard the voices of the men returning. Apprehensively he waited. Had they any suspicion of his presence in the second packing-case? While he held his breath and grimly clutched his revolver, they slid his box to the rear of the wagon, lifted it out, and deposited it on the barn floor. "'Going to have a look at it? Make sure it hasn't some live stock in it, too?' inquired the second man. Jack's heart stood still. "'No, it's all right.' declared Watts confidently. "'We'll have supper first. And to Jack's unspeakable relief they passed out and closed the barn door. Listening until from the house had come the slamming of a door, Jack once more freed the fastenings within the box, slipped the board aside, again listened a moment and crawled forth. As he stood stretching his cramped limbs he glanced about. A tear of what looked like bolts of cloth in the moonlight beneath one of the barn-windows caught his eye. He stepped over. It was silk, silk such as he had seen in the warehouse at Claxton. Instantly there came to Jack a startling suggestion. As quickly he decided to act upon it. They may never catch on, he told himself delightedly, and in any case it will give me a good start back for the railroad for help. Glancing from the barn-window to make sure all was quiet in the direction of the house, he drew his box into the moonlight, took out the parcel containing the telegraph instruments, and proceeded to remove the hooks and buttons, 
and all other signs of the door. Then quickly he filled the box with bolts of silk from the pile beneath the window. That done he found a hammer and nails, and muffling the hammer with his handkerchief, as quietly as possible nailed the boards into place. Triumphantly he slid the box to its former position on the floor. "'I think that will fool you, Mr. Watts,' he said with a smile, and catching up the telegraph instruments he turned to the door. On the threshold he started back. The two men, and two others, were returning from the house. In alarm Jack looked about for a way of escape. Across the barn was a smaller door. He ran forward on tiptoe, darted through, and found himself in the stable. Passing quietly on to the outer door, which the cracks and moonlight revealed, he waited until the four men had entered the main barn, then slipped forth, and keeping in the shadows, ran toward the house. A beam of light streamed from one of the rear windows. Jack made for it, and cautiously approaching, peered within. The woman he had seen at the door was at a table, washing dishes, her back toward him, and just beyond, facing him, and bound hand and foot in a big armchair, was the detective. For some minutes Jack tried in vain to attract the officer's attention. Then the woman obligingly stepped into the pantry with some dishes, and quickly Jack gave a single tap on the window-pane. Boyle looked up instantly, started, smiled, then nodded his head in the direction of the railroad. Jack held up the parcel containing the telegraph instruments. The detective nodded again, and in a moment Jack was off. It was an exhausting run over the rough, little-used road, now darkened by the overhanging trees, but at length Jack recognized the point at which he had been carried from the woods, and turning in he soon found himself at the railroad. Hurrying to the nearest telegraph pole, he swarmed up to the cross-tree, and quickly filed through the wire on one side of the glass insulator. The broken wire fell jangling to the rails. Connecting an end of the wire he had brought with him to the wire on the other side of the pin, Jack slid to the ground, made the connections with the instrument, and the relay clicked closed. At once someone on the wire said, "'Who had it open? What did you say?' "'Alex!' exclaimed Jack, at once recognizing the sending, and was about to break in when the instrument clicked. Seventeen just coming, CX. Claxton and seventeen, just what we want. Quickly interrupting, Jack sent, CX, hold seventeen, hold her. Then, to X, this is Jack, Al. I'm in the woods about four miles from Claxton. We found the freight thieves, but they have Boyle prisoner. Ask the chief to have seventeen take on a posse at CX and rush them here. I'll wait here and lead them back. If they are quick, they'll capture the whole gang. Okay, okay, good for you, shot back Alex. The wire was silent a moment, then Jack heard the order go on to Claxton as desired. Twenty-five minutes later, waiting in the darkness on the track, Jack saw the headlight of the fast-coming freight. The engineer, on the lookout, discovered him, pulled up, and a moment after Jack was off through the woods, followed by two officers and several of the train crew. When they reached the farm, lights were still moving about in the barn. Stealthily the party made for it, and surrounded it. "'How would you like to lead the way in, Jack?' whispered the sheriff, as they paused before the door. "'That would be only fair, after the trick Watts played on you.' 
Jack caught at the idea delightedly, and all being ready, boldly threw open the barn door and entered with drawn revolver, followed by the sheriff. The four occupants were so completely taken by surprise that for a moment they stood immovable about a box of dry goods they had been repacking. "'How do you do, Mr. Watts?' said Jack, smiling. "'This is my friend the sheriff, and the barn is surrounded. I think you would be foolish not to give up.' "'Yes, hands up,' crisply ordered the sheriff, and slowly the four pairs of hands went into the air, and the entire balance of the long successful gang of freight thieves were prisoners. It was Jack himself who rushed off to the house and freed Detective Boyle. A half-hour later, with one of the robber's own wagons filled with a great quantity of recovered stolen goods, the sheriff escorted his prisoners back to the railroad, and before daylight they were in the jail at Eastfield. Jack received considerable attention because of his part in the capture, and the affair still forms one of the popular yarns among trainmen on that division of the Middle Western. End of chapter.